0: You know what that music means. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for astronomical political correctness, with the word that the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, will stop using seemingly innocuous nicknames for celestial objects that have, well, they're saying insensitive or racist connotations. Case in point, NASA said it will specifically stop referring to planetary nebula NGC-2392 by its better known term, the Eskimo Nebula. No, Mr. Mellon, the term black hole did not enter into this discussion. Well, it turns out that if you are an amateur astronomer and you take the time to find NGC 2392, it does look, through a small telescope, and even a rather larger telescope, like a man in a hooded outfit, which some people thought resembled the residents of North America's frozen north. I realize that the term Eskimo was a broadly based, imprecise term for, I guess, the Inuit and other tribes in the Arctic region. But I'm wondering, couldn't they have renamed it, say, the Inuit Nebula? I'm pretty sure the Gangsta Nebula was out. Anyway, one amateur astronomer I know is is not not necessarily on board with this and said that uh, she might just well continue to refer to it as the Eskimo Nebula. Well, I guess that's her right to do as she pleases, but I know that, you know, when she's looking at the telescope that night, she will not be consuming any Eskimo pies. Oh, but the story isn't finished yet. Uh NASA also noted that the conjoined spiral galaxies NGC four five six seven and NGC four five six eight henceforth no longer be known as the Siamese Twins Galaxy. As I recall from reading Ripley's Believe It Or Not in My Youth, that P. T. Barnum or somebody, I don't remember exactly who it was, exhibited this this pair of, of conjoined uh humans who were, I believe, actually Chinese in background, as the Siamese twins. I don't know. It's a term that's very descriptive and certainly summarizes the medical condition at hand. Um, I don't know. It's just really that offensive. Anyway, NASA has now said it will work with diversity experts to review all astronomical nicknames. And as mentioned earlier on this program, it was a bad week last week for New Zealand, which, as reported, had its record of 102 days without a single new coronavirus case broken when four members of a family in Auckland tested positive prime minister jacinda ardern immediately reimposed tight restrictions on the country which has had just 1125 confirmed cases and 22 deaths anyway i think it's very important we figure out how it was there was this resurgence in new zealand i'm sure they're um, they're working on that now and We'll uh, be happy to report on that as soon as the results are in. And it was an ugly day last week for Phoenix, Arizona. Considered the warmest city in the United States, it it broke its own record for the most 110-degree days in a single year with 35 and counting. It is having its hottest summer in history. And in a related story, the temperature hit 130 in Death Valley. The record, as I understand it, in Death Valley is 134, set in 1913. Some of the news reports have claimed that in the past 107 years, it had it had not returned to the 130s, but I'm not sure that's correct. I know this, having lived uh, many, many years in California's Central Valley, that when people say, once it hits 100, it doesn't matter after that, well, those people are crazy, 110 or 115 is a lot worse than 100, which is why the Pentagon and a lot of forecasters looking into the future believe that it is highly likely that wide swaths of the Earth's surface are going to become uninhabitable for human beings in the decades to come. And wouldn't you know it, we're talking about the Earth getting too hot, and we've circled right back to the Donald J. Trump administration. And this August 14th headline from the New York Times, EPA eliminates methane regulation. Notes the piece, the Trump administration formally weakened a major climate change regulation Thursday, meaning August 10th, effectively freeing oil and gas companies from the need to detect and repair methane leaks. (laughs) Sure, why make them do that? Even his new research shows that far more of the potent greenhouse gases are seeping into the atmosphere than previously known. Now, there's been much talk in recent years about how it is we're doing great in terms of oil and gas because of fracking. Not so long ago, there was much talk of peak oil and how it was that the world would would peak out in oil production like a few years back and then see a steady decline as we went forward, which would force us at that point to seek out alternative means of providing energy. Instead, what happened was that a technology known as fracking was applied to various geologic strata, in other words, going down, finding an area rich in hydrocarbons, and busting through the impermeable layers above it, which had kept it capped, to let it out, at which point our friendly local oil and gas companies would capture that methane, which had been you know, sequestered away for hundreds of millions of years, to benefit our economy. Well, more specifically, to benefit their bottom line. Notes the piece, the rollback of the last major Obama-era climate rule is a gift to many beleaguered oil and gas companies, which have seen profits collapse from the COVID-19 pandemic geez, I feel so bad for those oil and gas companies. You know, they're just just getting by. But it comes, as scientists say, that the need to rein in methane leaks at fossil fuel wells nationwide has become far more urgent. And new studies indicate that the scale of methane pollution could be driving the planet towards a climate crisis faster than anticipated. As you are probably aware, dear listener, the effect of methane on the Earth's atmosphere as a greenhouse gas is considered 20 times as potent as that of CO2. Andrew Wheeler, the stooge, oh I'm sorry, the head of the EPA, announced at an event in Pittsburgh last week that he had completed the legal process of lifting the methane regulation. He said, the EPA has been working hard to fulfill President Trump's promise to cut burdensome and ineffective regulations for our domestic energy industry. Regulatory burdens put into place by the Obama-Biden administration fell heavily on small and medium-sized energy businesses. Well, our suspicion here is that it fell heavily on mega-sized energy businesses. Anyway, the article had a picture of Andrew Wheeler, EPA administrator. And just for my money, he kind of reminds me of that line from Casablanca. And for my money, he reminds me of uh, that line from The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart, where he says words to the effect of, he doesn't mind a crook, but he can't abide a cheap one. I don't know. I guess that's a little unfair to refer to Andrew Wheeler as a guy that looks like a cheap crook. But he does remind me of the Wilmer character from The Maltese Falcon, who's supposed to be a gun-toting tough, but turns out to be kind of a doofus. Mr. Mr. Mullen points out that he was referred to in the film as a gunsel. And since he has brought it up, I can't resist the slight detour into the fact that the term gunsel came to mean from that movie that it referred to a gun-toting tough. In fact, the word gunsel meant something else entirely. My understanding was that its proper usage at the time of the movie was to refer to someone's submissive and subservient gay partner. And that Bogart's use of the term in the film was meant to be more denigrating. And you know, we probably shouldn't have taken that detour. But anyway, back to the EPA article. The EPA estimates that the rule changes being contemplated will yield economic benefits of roughly $100 million a year through 2030. So I assume that they're talking about amortizing $100 million over 10 years. So they're going to save $10 million a year while leading to the release of about 850,000 tons of planet-warming methane in the atmosphere over the same period. I don't know. To us, that doesn't seem like a good deal. Because that would work out to like 17 million, 17 million extra tons of CO2 over one decade. Seems like a lot. Seems like a lot up in Canada, where the 4,000-year-old Milne Ice Shelf perched on the northwestern edge of Ellesmere Island and the country's last intact ice shelf, well, it broke up somewhere around July 30th or 31st. As the ice shelf slid away, two giant icebergs formed along with lots of smaller ones, and they have already started drifting away. The biggest is nearly the size of Manhattan Island. Spokesman Adrian White of the Canadian Ice Service, and who knew there was a Canadian Ice Service, but there is, said, this is a huge, huge block of ice. He added, if one of these is moving toward an oil rig, there's nothing you can really do aside from moving your oil rig. I didn't know oil rigs were portable. Anyway, temperatures from May to early August in this year have been 9 degrees Fahrenheit or 5 degrees Celsius warmer than the 1980 to 2010 average. This is on top of an Arctic that has already been warming much faster than the rest of the globe. Luke Copeland, glaciology professor at the University of Ottawa, said, without a doubt, it's climate change. He noted that ice shelves are hundreds of thousands of years old. They are thicker than the long-term sea ice, but not as big or old as glaciers. Canada used to have a large, continuous ice shelf across the northern coast of Ellesmere Island, which is in the Canadian territory of Nunavut. But it has been breaking apart over the last decades because of man-made global warming. By 2005, it was down to six remaining ice shelves. But the Milne was really the last complete ice shelf. And in case that hasn't upset you, Bloomberg News is noting that we are now looking toward the possibility of the first Arctic summer without sea ice. And that would be coming in just 15 years. To quote from the article, there's a standard image of the Earth as seen from space that we carry in our heads. Vast blue seas, green bands of forests, and a frozen white cap on the top and bottom. By the summer of 2035, it may not be accurate. Scientists estimate that in just 15 years, Arctic summer sea ice could disappear for the first time since primitive humans left Africa. According to Maria Victoria Guarino, an earth system modeler at the British Antarctic Survey and lead author of a study published earlier this month in the journal Nature Climate Change, we will have less and less time to get ready for it and less time to act on it if we want to do something about it. This is happening soon. The new research is the latest in a steady stream that has moved up predicted time frame for the ice-free Arctic milestone. I remember, oh I don't know, 15 years ago they were talking about how this might happen, might happen by the end of the 21st century, not 2035. The amount of sea ice floating atop the Arctic Ocean at summer's end has fallen about 13 percent per decade since 1979. The 13 years with the smallest ice extents on record have all happened over the previous 13 years. And this summer is a sure bet to be number 14. The 2035 estimate made by Barino and her colleagues is based on what's known about past climates. Scientists over the past years have assembled evidence about previous eras from chemical traces in rock, ice, and sediment. The new Arctic study looks specifically at the period 130,000 years ago called the last interglacial. That period was hotter by 4 degrees Celsius than the pre-industrial era, which surprises me. I didn't realize we were that warm that recently. Our current warming, on average, is already about 1 degree Celsius, and the Arctic is warming more than twice as fast as the rest of the planet. And you'll be unhappy to learn, scientists from North Carolina State University and the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, early this year, Used a different model to arrive at a similar 2035 target for the ice free Arctic summer. By ice free, scientists usually mean an extent of less than 1 million square kilometers. The lowest it has reached is 3.4 million in 2012. <laughs> but in case you're searching out some reason to feel optimistic, you might want to consult with Gay Peng, research scholar at the North Carolina. State University team who did note that unexpected events could alter the timeline. The eruption of a large volcano, which spews chemicals into the atmosphere that blocks sunlight and lower temperatures, could push the estimates out a few years. You know, if we need the eruption of another Mount Pinatubo to save us from this, well, I just say at minimum that's not something you can count on. And of course, the news from the Arctic where we see that methane is now seeping through the permafrost as things warm up, well, it's, that's bound to accelerate this. And what is the world doing about all of this? Well, for the most part, not a whole lot. The U.S., however, is taking firm action. As noted just a moment ago, the EPA is eliminating methane regulation. Since as I said that I picked up the article, I feel like quoting from it some more. This piece did quote Robert Howarth, described as Earth System Scientist at Cornell University, who last year published a study estimating that the North American gas production was responsible for about a third of the global increase in methane emissions over the past decade. Coupled with the fact that he said over the past years, there's been an explosion of new research on this, and the literature has coalesced of papers show that methane from oil and gas leaks is two to three times higher than the EPA's estimates, to which he added, it's crazy to roll back this rule. Well, what do you think, Mr. Millen? Does that sound crazy? Well, I'd like to take a cruise ship to the North Pole. Yeah, yeah, cruise ship and ice-free Arctic. It looks like you're combining two bad ideas. Nah, let's face it. Under Donald Trump as the President of the United States, we are going to relax rules on methane emission. And no matter how you look at it, that is... At about this point in the program, we're looking around through the pile of clippings in front of us, uh, I think desperately searching for some good news. And I guess if we can't find something that is incontrovertibly good, we'll have to settle for something that is incontrovertibly amusing. So to do that, let's go to our old pal, Uncle John, and his Bathroom Reader series. I'm using the same edition uh, from which the Ivan Blaggin story arose. That would be the 16th edition of the Bathroom Reader series, titled Unstoppable on the cover. We commemorate at some length on this program the passing last year of Alan Abel, one of the great pranksters of all time. I've been following the career of Mr. Abel for many, many decades, I think it's fair to say, and uh, we we certainly admire his work. He went around the country in the 1960s uh, promoting a group that supposedly demanded that we clothe naked animals. They were indecent. It's time we did something about it. A memorable guy, but one guy that I did not know anything about who is still alive and still doing pranks right and left, was Joey Skaggs. The Uncle John's chapter on him was titled Hoaxmeister. The subheadline was, Think everything you read the newspapers or see in the news has been checked for accuracy? Well, think again. This is especially relevant in today's times when things like the Plandemic video are being sent friend to friend. Notes the piece. Sometimes the media will repeat whatever they're told, to which we would add, along with people. People who fancy themselves their do-it-yourself media. Anyway, Joey Skaggs set out to prove it. He's got three hoaxes we especially like and will now tell you about. Number one, Makdananda the psychic attorney. Apparently, in 1994, Skaggs put out 30-second TV spots in which he dressed like a swami. Seated on a pile of cushions, Makdananda asked viewers, why deal with the legal system without knowing the outcome beforehand? Along with all the normal third-dimensional legal issues, Divorce Accidental Injury Wills Trust, Makdananda claimed he could help renegotiate contracts made in past lives. He could also sue for psychic surgery malpractice and help rectify psychic injustices. Said Makdananda, there's no statute of limitations in the psychic realm. Viewers just had to call the number at the bottom of their screen, 108 uca DADA." In Hawaii, CNN headline news ran the spot 40 times during the week. When people called the number, and many did, they were greeted with the Swami's voice and answering machine saying, I knew you'd call. Skaggs only made it that the Swami was a hoax. One of his earliest pranks dates back to 1976. I still think this is one of his best. Skaggs ran an ad in the Village Voice for a dog bordello. For just $50, Skaggs promised satisfaction for any sexually deprived Fido. He then hosted a special night in the cat house for dogs, just for the media. A beautiful woman and her Saluki, both clad in tight red sweaters and bows, paraded up and down in front of the panting clientele, which were male dogs belonging to Skaggs friends. The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals lodged a slew of protests and had Skaggs arrested and indicted for cruelty to animals. The event was even featured on an Emmy-nominated WABC News documentary, but the joke was on them the dog bordello never existed. Finally, in 1981, Skaggs, pretending to be an entomologist from Colombia named Dr. Joseph Gregor told an interview with WNBC's Live at Five that he'd graduated from the University of Bogota and said his miracle roach hormone cure cured the common cold, acne, and menstrual cramps. The amazed Skaggs later remarked, nobody ever checked my credentials. And the interviewers didn't realize they were being had until Dr. Gregor played his theme song. Mr. McMillan? You know, we really could use a guy like Makdananda, the psychic attorney. A guy that could tell us what's going to take place in, say, Belarus as they continue to fight over the election results. President Lukashenko is turning to Vladimir Putin to help him out of this jam. And in one other bit of amusing news ripped from today's headlines, we have this. Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr., as reported on this program, went on an indefinite leave of absence last week after he posted an Instagram photo of himself with his pants unzipped, a beverage in one hand, presumably an alcoholic beverage, and his other arm around the waist of a woman whose pants were also open. The university's executive committee has asked Falwell, one of President Trump's most prominent evangelical backers, to go on leave. Falwell has claimed that the woman was his wife's assistant, and, I really love this, since she couldn't close her pants because she was pregnant, he opened his too. Now, this explanation makes it sound as though, you know, it's the gentlemanly thing to do. But I must say that in my experience, I've been around many, many, many pregnant women. I don't recall any guys popping open their pants as a show of solidarity. I do it all the time. Well, there you go. I just didn't know. After this explanation, he apparently added, I promise my kids I will try to be a good boy from here on out. Well, you know, that does imply a little bit of guilty conscience about opening up his pants. I don't know. This isn't the first time Falwell's gotten into trouble. According to the Week magazine, he and his wife traveled with and lent $1.5 million to a 21-year-old pool boy that they met at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. Now, we have no details on this whatsoever, but we suspect there's, well, more to the story. We do know that Trump's former fixer, attorney Michael Cohn, has said that he helped Falwell conceal sexually explicit photos of Falwell and his wife. And in May, Falwell tweeted a photo of a man in a Ku Klux Klan outfit. Pretty sure there's more to that story, too. We mentioned earlier in the program about Dr. Scott Atlas and his belief or his contention that uh, kids are not spreading uh, uh, COVID-19. But uh, the fact of the matter is a new small study from Chicago has found that children with COVID-19 carry just as much of the virus in their nose and throats as adults and that those under age five can host up to 100 times more. If confirmed, reports Reuters, this finding could undermine a key assumption underpinning the reopening of schools around the world that children don't spread the virus as easily as their parents. This study doesn't prove that children can spread the virus to others, but it does suggest that scientists have a lot more to learn about transmission in children. And you know, I have to add, as we conduct those kind of studies, we probably shouldn't be relying upon, say, the my pillow guy to do the work. And here's a spot of news on something we've speculated on this program about. The question of whether you might benefit from inhaling a small amount of coronavirus versus a large amount if you're going to get it. Scientists know that face masks can prevent infected people from spreading the coronavirus to others, notes the New York Times. But new research suggests that masks can also protect uninfected wearers by reducing the risk they'll get seriously ill or catch it. Virologists suspect that people wearing face coverings inhale fewer airborne viral particles, making it easier for their immune system to fight and defeat the intruders. Dr. Monica Gandhi at UCSF noted that different types of masks block virus to different degrees, but they all hinder the virus from getting in. While it's estimated that about 40% of COVID-19 infections result in no symptoms, the rate appears to rocket in places where people wear masks. Now, we're not sure how to quantify that term rocket, but it, it does make a certain amount of sense that if everybody's wearing masks, that the rate of people who are asymptomatic, in other words, have the virus but are not particularly sick, could go up because they were inoculated with a smaller number of viral particles and therefore were not as ill. The article article cites a seafood plant in Oregon where masks were widely used. There, 90% of all cases were asymptomatic. And a comparison on cruise ships, cruise ships not going to the Arctic, noted an asymptomatic rate above 80% when passengers were issued masks. On cruise ships where masks weren't in widespread use, the rate was below 20%. This is very interesting. You know, that does make a certain amount of sense from an epidemiologic standpoint, from a medical standpoint. Like you, we are keen to learn more. And our final item of the day uh, would have to be under the watch this space category. In Sturgis, South Dakota, tens of thousands of bikers roared into the town. Last week, it was for the 10-day Sturgis motorcycle rally. It promised to be the largest single mass gathering since the pandemic began. Crowds for the 250,000-person event began forming a week early, and apparently people there are flouting social distancing recommendations. If you've seen any photographs, you'll know that's true. At the Buffalo Chip Campground, hundreds of fans clad in leather jackets but no masks took in a smash-mouth concert. Said Smash Mouth lead singer Steve Harwell, as the crowd cheered, we're being human once again. Peace quotes Michael Brown of Lemoyne, Nebraska, saying, I don't know one person in a six-state radius who has had COVID. I think it's all just political. Meanwhile, Laura Armstrong, president of the city council in Rapid City, located 30 miles away, gave voice to residents considerable misgivings, calling the rally, quote, insanity, unquote. Well, we'll see what happens when all those motorcyclists return home, won't we? program was produced by Edward McMillan. Still trying to book that Arctic cruise. The next week's show, we hope to bring you a young physician who's done a study on what makes people susceptible to COVID. We also hope to bring you an employee of the U.S. Postal Service to talk about what Trump's up to there. That should be interesting. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.